Good morning, and it's uh, very good to see you here today and to come to God's Word together and to seek a fresh nourishment from His Word for us here, and that's what I hope that He provides to our church today. Why don't we pray? Father, we come today and we ask that as we come to Your Word that You would do that, that You would help us to understand, that you would help us to uh, learn, that you would help us, Lord, to be spiritually invigorated by uh, your truth, and that we would seek to apply it in ways that would uh, cultivate a Christ-likeness in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our life, and that it would be uh, a part of this transformation that you are working, uh, making us like your blessed Son. To Him be glory, as we have just sung, um, uh, forever and ever, we pray. Amen. I'd like for you to uh, reflect with me about I'm, what I'm guessing is a shared experience probably for most of us from our uh, days gone by growing up. Uh, I'd like you to think back to high school days, maybe even junior high days, uh, when... Your school had a big game against an arch rival. These were great days, of course, because uh, this was an opportunity to promote within the school a little bit of school unity. And what school doesn't need school unity? And to promote a little bit of school spirit. And what school doesn't need a little school spirit? And so the uh, administrators will uh, agree to having what we call a pep rally. Do you remember these? Or were you all homeschooled, possibly? And so this is, illustration is going to make no sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, what's a pep rally when you're homeschooled? I don't know. Snack time or something. But uh, I, I, in my schools growing up, and of course this is in Iowa, and I found that there is some cultural divide between Iowa and the rest of the world, so I'm not sure if this is exactly the same with you. But what, what we would do is that uh, there would be some time in the afternoon when it would be identified that we were going to have a pep rally, which of course people were excited about because this meant that we got out of class to go to the pep rally. And who doesn't like a lot of yelling and screaming? So into the gym, uh, we would go for the pep rally. And of course, there had to be lots of cheerleaders there. And we all know that cheerleading is a sport, and don't you suggest it's not. Uh, so lots of cheerleaders would be there. And there would be lots of yelling and screaming, and of course, the, uh, the team would be introduced, and lots of yelling for the team as they're introduced, and then the coach would have a few words to share with the entire school about how we're going to destroy them, and it's going to be great, and you all come out, and, and uh, at some point in this pep rally, at least the ones that I attended, there would be, the, uh, the, the school would break out into cheers. Here's some examples of the cheers that, uh, that we would cheer. V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, victory is our battle cry. Maybe you remember that one. Or how about this one? We will, we will rock you. Why is that funny? I feel like I'm at a Shakespeare play. I don't understand. 
Well, this is probably one that everybody did. You've probably heard this one before. We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And this would typically begin in one part of the gym, and that part of the gym would then you know, like challenge the other part of the gym and the other part of the gym would say slightly louder and a little bit faster. We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And then this side, a little bit faster, a little bit louder. We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And at some point in the interchange, one of the groups would break into the, we got the most, we got the most, we got the most. Did you do that growing up? You can relate to that. Good times. Those are good times. And I think a snapshot, that cheer in particular, a snapshot of how many Christians and many churches and many denominations approach the whole matter of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We got the Spirit. Yes, we do. We got the Spirit. How about you? We got the most. We got the most. Summarizing a perspective on the Holy Spirit where they believe that, or we, I mean, it's all of us, we believe we've got this right and you've got it wrong, and therefore we have more of the Holy Spirit than you do. Rather than promoting unity, these debates and these shouting matches actually have been some of the most divisive debates that have gone on in the church, uh, especially the last hundred years. And has promoted, sadly, division and rivalry amongst God's people. Which is, of course, terribly ironic when you think about the fact that it is the Spirit who unites us. Do you see the irony in this? Debates about the doctrine of the one who unites us divides us. That's a sad irony. Now today, we come to, in 1 Corinthians 12, a passage that... uh, teaches us how the Spirit unites us. How the Spirit unites us across categories of division that in human history have been irreconcilable. Racial divide and class social divide. And we could add on to that all kinds of categories. Uh, Race, education, experience, whatever you want to say, the church is one. And how God has accomplished that by his spirit is what this passage is all about. Now, we've learned so far in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts. And I told you that as we work through chapter 12, not only are we going to develop a theology of spiritual gifts, we're also going to develop a deeper theology of the Holy Spirit. Both of these are, I think, very helpful for us as a church. So, after explaining in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12 uh, that spiritual gifts all come from the same source, they come from the Holy Spirit, he now explains how the Spirit unites all believers. And our passage today is verses 12 and 13. Here is what God's Word says. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
May God bless his word to us today. Beginning in verse 12 here, Paul does what all communicators need to do and what I really began my message with today, and that is that he begins an illustration. And you see that the illustration carries on through verse 26 and his point all the way through the end of the chapter. Now, here's the illustration. He is illustrating or comparing the church to a human body. Now, this is something that all of us ought to be able to relate to because I I think all of us have a body here, right? We all have a body. Anybody here have two bodies? Anybody here wish they had a different body? (laughs) Don't answer that. But uh, it is true that the church is like the body. And he, the analogy that he is developing here is that we can look at our body and notice a few things. Like, I have feet, and I have fingers, and I have, uh, I have knees, and I have eyes and ears, and so do you. And what my feet are doing is something different than what my eyes are doing. And what my fingers are doing is something different than what my ears are doing. So we find in the body that we have all of these parts, don't we? All of these different functioning parts. And yet, in spite of this diversity of function, there is singularity of purpose and unity in the body. If a body is disunified, if the body is attacking itself, this is a a major problem. It's known as a disease. So the church is like that. At least it ought to be like that. In the sense that we are one and must function in a unity of purpose like the body. So the church, in spite of these incredible diversities, in spite of the racial diversities, and in spite of the ethnic diversities, and in spite of the, uh, the, the educational and experiential and all these different backgrounds that are represented, the church yet still is one. And on top of that, to recognize that there is only one church and that this church is transgenerational. That every believer who has ever lived, who will ever live, is a member of this one body. It spans the centuries, the church. Well, how does this happen? Because we look around the world and nothing else does this. Everywhere else we look in the world, there is, there is division. And these categories are things that divide and define the world. And yet the church is one. So how does God make hundreds of millions of people one? We find the answer to that beginning in verse 13. And this really is the verse that we're going to spend our time on today. Here's what again, what it says. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, if you just give a cursory glance to that verse, you notice a few things right away that pop out, like the repetition of the word one. Three times in this verse, we find the word one, one spirit, one body, and then again, one spirit. The other word that is repeated is the word all. We have all baptized, all were made to drink. So whatever we're talking about here is something that all Christians experience, not just some. So how does he do it? Well, the simple answer here is that in salvation... All Christians experience 
the same work of the Spirit. Now, let's talk about this a second. When we talk about the gospel, and we say, we embrace uh, Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved. There is only one gospel. There's only one way. Jesus made that clear in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So all Christians who are, who are redeemed from their sin, who are in a place of salvation, have believed the same gospel. There is not two gospels or four gospels. There is one gospel and one Savior, Christ. So right there we see that there is a shared belief. There is a shared faith primarily in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he came to this world as Savior, lived a perfect life, qualifying him to be an all-sufficient Savior. Died on the cross, bearing the guilt of our sin, dying in our place, taking what we deserve. And by doing that, paying the ransom that our sins required. Dead in the grave for three days, resurrected on the third day, proving that he was who he claimed to be. And from the Father's perspective, showing that he had accepted his sacrifice, raised to life for our justification, ascended to heaven, where he now is our great high priest, interceding for us. He stands as prophet, priest, and king over the church. And as the choir rejoiced in a few minutes ago, he is coming back. And that is the blessed hope of the church. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what the choir was rejoicing in. And indeed, this is what our future holds and what we are so much looking forward to when he comes back, the bridegroom for his bride. This is the gospel. And all who are saved have believed in this gospel. We also find that the Spirit is at work in this. The, the Father sends the Son, orchestrates, purposes sal our salvation. The Son comes, does all the things that I described. The Spirit is also active in the incarnation of Christ. How do you have a virgin giving birth to a child? The Spirit of God was the means by which that was accomplished. He guided Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. We find that Jesus, filled with the Spirit, goes out and does his public ministry. And as God's agent on earth, currently active in his people, indwelling his people, and doing many other things, which the Bible describes here. And let me give you a list of some of the things that the Spirit is doing. He is the one that convicts the world of sin. Our conscience bears witness to us that what we are doing is wrong, and the Spirit uses that truth in our hearts to convict us unto salvation. He testifies and glorifies Christ in this world. Remember the spotlight illustration from a few weeks ago. That's why he's here, to magnify Christ. He makes us spiritually alive, born again, known as regeneration. He permanently indwells each believer. He actively works to make each believer's life increasingly righteous. This process of being made into the likeness of Christ, known as sanctification. The Spirit is doing that. He empowers believers with gifts for service, which is what we've been studying here in chapter 12. And he nourishes believers with truth, comfort, intercession, and guidance. And praise God that he is doing that. He is God's active agent on earth. He is empowering the church. He is empowering the gospel. He is empowering the word. So we see here that this is big. He is powerful. 
All that we see going on here is the, is the fruit of the Spirit of God at work here. In fact, you could say in your own life, the benefit that you have had in your life of responding to the gospel and growth in your Christian life is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you. So we thank the Lord, we thank God for His Spirit and what He is doing. It's a big deal. In fact, such a dramatic deal, such a transformational activity, that this is how Jesus summarized the work of the Spirit. In John chapter 3, and many of you know this, this passage, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night. And if you know John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, etc., etc. This is part of that discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. Here is verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus has just said that you must be born again. And, and if you never heard anything before, like Nicodemus about this, you could, you could kind of go, well, how does that work? Crawl back in your mother's womb and do it again? I mean, it's almost, it's kind of a, I don't know what to say about that kind of a question, but that's basically what he is asking. Totally not getting what Jesus is talking about. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now we celebrate constantly here the centrality of Christ and his role as our Savior and head of the church. And that is right and that is good and we're going to keep doing that until he comes back or we die. Uh, but we also need to recognize that, that God the Spirit plays a massive role in everything that the church is doing and in the Christian's life. So huge, so transformational, that Jesus himself, infinite wisdom, tries to come up, doesn't try, he comes up with, shares an illustration as close to what he says it's like, and it is this, it's like being born again. Now, none of us remember what it was like to be born the first time, and it's probably just as well. <laughs> but I would have to think that if, if a baby could talk, a newborn baby could talk moments after being born, and if you could have a moment to interview that child, and you said, what was that like? You know, the whole everything. <laughs> I mean, the stork and all of that. What was that like? <laughs> Don't you think that that child would... Oh, wow. Wow. Talk about a transformation. Suddenly, breathing on my own. Suddenly, living in a world and seeing and all the rest. You want to talk about a mega change. Just being born, that's got to be a big one. In salvation, 
what happens is that the Spirit makes alive what up to this point has been spiritually dead. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, every one of us, Ephesians 4 tells us, we're dead. We weren't on uh, life support. We weren't on oxygen. We were spiritually dead. My soul was dead. But in salvation, the Spirit makes us alive. It is like being born again. It is like a resurrection from the dead. It is called a regeneration, Titus 3, 5. So that on the other side of the experience of the Spirit in salvation, if we really realized what was going on and and somebody interviewed us, all we would say is, wow, I was dead, but now I'm alive. It's like I've been born again. That's how Jesus describes it. Transformational. Now, Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 12 is similar to Jesus, but different. Remember, what is he trying to accomplish in this chapter? We have these Corinthian Christians, and they are all divided about spiritual gifts. And some are proud that they have a particular gift, and some are envious that they don't have a particular gift. And there's all of this rancor and division, and he's trying to help them realize, listen, all of these come from the same Spirit. They are sourced in the Holy Spirit. Their unity comes from their shared identity in Christ and a location in the body of Christ now, which is what the dramatic work of the Spirit has produced. So dramatic is what the Spirit does for us in salvation that Paul uses the word here, baptism, which is a vivid description, I think. To be baptized is to be engulfed with water. To go completely under. I am, I, am, I am baptized now by the water. Similarly, to be baptized by the Spirit engulfs us in the spiritual life of the Spirit and relocates us now spiritually in the body of Christ. Let me say that again. Spirit baptism engulfs us in the spiritual life of the Spirit And spiritually relocates us now into the one body of Christ. And we see this repetition in the word all. All shows that this is the experience of all all Christians. All who have saving faith. That is baptism in the spirit. Now, here is one of the reasons that this is important to understand. There are many reasons. But... This phrase, spirit baptism, is used by different people in different ways. I would bet you probably know somebody, if you've been a Christian for very long or you've been around churches for very long, you probably know somebody who has come to you and talks about being baptized by the Spirit and shares experiences that came along with that for them. Notice the slight change in the vernacular Baptized by the Spirit. Not in the Spirit. By the Spirit. By the Spirit makes the Spirit the baptizer. In the Spirit makes the Spirit the element into which we have been baptized. There's a big difference in in those. Like take our Lake Michigan baptism just as an analogy. It's much different to say that I was baptized in Lake Michigan or baptized 
by Lake Michigan. Like water in water baptism, we are baptized into the Spirit, which unifies the church in Him. So if you look at the chapter, this fits perfectly the whole entire context. We have one shared experience which has united us all into the one body of Christ. Clearly, it is unity in the Spirit. So what should we say then about the phrase baptism by the Spirit and its typical use by brothers and sisters who come, brothers and sisters in Christ who come from uh, what are typically known as more charismatic or Pentecostal traditions? Well, here is what is typically meant by baptism by the Spirit. They refer to it as a second blessing, subsequent to salvation, which is a repeatable experience and is most often accompanied by ecstatic utterances like speaking in tongues. I want to dig in a little bit on this, okay? So let's dig a little and and see uh, see what we can see here. First of all, here is every use of the phrase baptism in the Spirit or with the Spirit in the New Testament. And, and um, there's six other ones other than the verse that we're looking at. Here are the first four. And these are grouped together because they're basically the same uh, statement. All four Gospels, John describing what Jesus is going to do when he shows up. So you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I'll read the Luke one. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, we don't get any, like, theological explanation of that, definition of that. That's all that we get right there. But notice that it is Jesus who is the baptizer, And the Spirit is the element into which Jesus is doing the baptism. Now, the other two also have a relationship, if you put those up. And these are both from the book of Acts. The first is from Acts 1. Shortly before Jesus ascends to heaven, he has some words to share with his disciples. And he says here to them, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And then the Acts 11 passage is Peter remembering what Jesus said and basically then just repeating, uh, repeating the Acts 1, 5. So what we see then in, in these accounts is that in each case, it is, in all six of these, it is Jesus who is the baptizer. He is the one that is, that is doing it. The Spirit is the element into which Jesus will baptize his people. None of them refer to the Spirit being the baptizer, i.e. baptized by the Spirit. Rather, the Spirit is the element into which the Christian is baptized. Which leaves 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen the, the passage that's in front of us. And this is why this verse is a real battleground in the whole, we got the Spirit, yes we do, we, and how about you? This is, this is why this verse is very much discussed and debated 
especially for those who are taking the perspective that spirit baptism is a second blessing subsequent to salvation at some point in con- after conversion to Christ. Now, a few things I want to note to you here, and these are uh, slightly technical, but um, I think that you'll get it. First of all, the Greek construction in this verse is nearly identical to the other six that I shared with you. There's no grammatical reason to interpret the preposition, which in the ESV is in, translated as in, as suddenly by here when none of the others are. We are not baptized by the Spirit. We are rather baptized in the Spirit. That little preposition makes a big difference. And the second thing I want you to see is that that word baptism, the Greek has all of these Uh, ways of using verbs that allow it to communicate different meaning. This verb is said in a way that is a simple past action. I, I, uh, I, I, I bought gum at the store. Not I bought gum and am buying gum at the store. Simple past action. We were baptized. Not the one that there's a verb that could have done the, did it and still doing it, still consequenting, simple past action. Now, what remains in the, the debate, the, the, there's lots of things here, but the, the, the last primary one that I want to bring up to you is, how does this relate to what happened at Pentecost? Now, if you recall, at Pentecost, there is this dramatic coming of the Spirit where There's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And the disciples are in the upper room. They're praying. The wind comes, and there are tongues of fire that rest over each of the disciples. They are suddenly emboldened now uh, to preach the gospel. Peter goes out, preaches the first message, and in that, these disciples are speaking languages to people from all over the world that up to that point, they didn't know. And even the people are like, how do we hear things in languages? How do we hear these these men talking in our own native tongue? That's Pentecost. The charismatic position on this is that the disciples were already believers. And the spirit coming at Pentecost was a, or is a paradigm for what all Christians should experience at some point in faith after Christ. The disciples were already saved prior to Pentecost. I don't think anybody debates that. So is Pentecost a paradigm for what all Christians should expect, or is it something else? And I think to answer that, that we have to understand what Pentecost is in the grand story of redemption. So if we could just pull back from, pull back from the story and look at the, the, the grand sweep here, What we see is that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Spirit definitely had a role. People were regenerated by the Spirit in the Old Testament, just like we are in the New Testament. But his role is a much more subtle one, a behind-the-scenes one. In fact, I remember in my ordination, I got a question about the Spirit's role in the Old Testament, and it stumped me. To this day, I remember that, although I didn't remember it until right now. And now I've recorded it for posterity to always know what was the thing that pastor steve got stumped on 20 years ago at his ordination this was it uh so now i've just totally discredited everything i'm about to say uh but (laughs) 
I've studied it since then. So what do we see in the old, in the old covenant? The spirit definitely had a role. For example, he was there at creation. The spirit is hovering over the waters in Genesis one, two, we find the spirit empowering people for specific tasks of ministry in the old Testament. And So we find the Spirit definitely there, but he is generally behind the scenes. What we also find are prophecies about when the Spirit comes in the new covenant, that his role is going to be dramatically different. And we see that in Jeremiah uh, 31 and in Joel 2. And that this new covenant is going to be accompanied by a new empowerment by the Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus says in Acts 1 is going to happen. He says, listen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So what is Pentecost? Pentecost is the transitional moment in the role of the Spirit between what he did in the Old Covenant and what he did in the New Covenant. Now there is a, a much more upfront role that the Spirit plays, much more powerful role. And if there was ever a group that needed empowerment, it was these disciples. I mean, you could, if before the Spirit comes in Acts 2, you could look at this and say, how on earth are these guys ever going to fulfill the Great Commission? I mean, just think about what we've seen. The soldiers show up, and what happens to all the disciples? They run away like uh, schoolgirls. Uh, Peter denies three times to a little girl that he even knows Jesus. And so it's just like, you know, and he's the leader of the group. And you think, how on earth are these guys ever going to do what Christ has called them to do? They need empowerment. They need boldness. Where is that going to come from? It came from the Spirit. And we see dramatically, suddenly, right after Pentecost, they are emboldened to go and to preach the gospel. And the rest of Acts and really the rest of the, 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 the gospel ministry for 2,000 years are the reverberations, the ripple of the Spirit coming at Pentecost in this new dramatic fashion. So understanding this as a major moment of covenantal transition helps us see Pentecost what, for what it is. The Spirit couldn't come until Jesus was glorified. Remember Jesus said that, I got to go so that he can come. And there's that amazing statement where he basically says, it's better that he's here than I'm here. Which ought to pretty radically affect our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because if, you know, most of us, the average Christian would be better for Jesus to be here or would it be better for the Spirit to be here? We would be, oh, it'd be great to have Jesus here. But in Jesus' minds, what the Spirit is doing for this time in history is much more important than even his presence physically with his church. This is a big deal, the role of the Spirit. So it is a moment of transition, a dramatic moment, when the new covenantal role of the Spirit was inaugurated. Therefore, I would say it is not a paradigm of what every Christian should expect to happen at some point in their life. Uh, Here's a summary statement of what baptism in the Spirit is. It is a summary term for the dramatic work of the Spirit at conversion, which all Christians experience and which unites all of us into the one body of Christ. Let me say that again. It is the dramatic work of the Spirit. Even 
Even if we don't realize how dramatic it is, it is a dramatic work of the Spirit at conversion, which everybody experiences. If you are a Christian, you have been baptized in the Spirit. And this has united all of us together into the blessed one body of Christ known as the church. That is baptism. Now, interestingly, I read, in regards to this debate, I read, um, I think, three theologians who are non-cessationist theologians who uh, said that even charismatic and Pentecostal scholars are abandoning this verse as referring to some kind of a second blessing. Uh, And so this abandonment, I think, has not trickled down to the pews yet, and so you will probably still hear people talk about a post-conversion spiritual experience as a baptism by the Spirit. Now, that said, where do we put, what category do we put post-conversion spiritual experience of the Spirit? If not in baptism, spirit baptism, where do we put it? And next week, I hope to talk about with you filling, the filling of the Holy Spirit as a place for us to look a biblical category to put ongoing experiences of the Spirit in the Christian life. So more on that next week. All right, we're in the home stretch. Listen in now. There is so much to celebrate regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is unfortunate that this term has been clouded by so much controversy. In fact, I was thinking to myself yesterday, I was mowing the yard, I thought to to myself, I don't know that I've ever heard a message on spirit baptism in my life. And I've been in the church like all my life. I wonder how many of you do. How many of you came in here today with some kind of understanding of what this is all about? I think this is sad because it is a blessed and wonderful truth. Look back what is plain in the text. All Christians are united together into one body. Hear that. All Christians are one. And to make sure that we understand how radical this is, Paul chooses two of the oldest divisions known to uh, mankind. First of all, he says, Jews or Greeks. What's that? Racism. Next, he says, uh, slaves are free. What is that? Class warfare. You want to talk about things that divide people even to this day. How about racism, just to start with that? That sense in the human heart where I am better than somebody else because my background, my skin color, whatever it is, is somehow superior to those of other people. I don't have to tell you how much this is everywhere and even in our own community here. Something I was largely unaware of before I moved here 13 years ago. Racism is everywhere. Contemporary examples of racism. You know, the World Cup is in, what, two weeks in South Africa? Guaranteed, if you're a soccer person, you'll probably be watching this, living the World Cup. Uh, They will spend time talking about the history of South Africa and this history of apartheid, this sense of white versus black. And you can think of all of the tragedies that that South Africa experienced under that regime, that ideology. Or we could go to Rwanda. If you ever saw the movie Hotel Rwanda, then you know, or if you know your history. 1994, between the tribes, the Hutu tribes and the Tutsi tribe, 800,000 people 
killed in Rwanda in a racial uh, genocide. Racism permeates the human heart. It would take something really, really radical and transformational to bring human races together because it's never happened in human history. Not with any, uh, any sustaining way. Or what about class warfare? The battle between the haves and the have-nots. This has largely defined human history. We can go to the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia or the China Revolution under Mao. What were all of those? Those were class warfare battles, uh, resentment towards another people for what they have or what they don't have, a sense of I'm better because I have it, I'm better because I don't have it. These kind of battles, millions of people have died because of class warfare in human history. These things have shaped all that we are in the, in the map of the world to this day. What possibly could unite social classes? What possibly could bring together things that no president and no government and no philosopher and no schooling and nothing else has ever brought together? What could bring these groups together? We find there is one thing that unites, truly unites people. And that is the gospel of Christ applied by the Spirit makes people that up to that point would hate each other, now one forever. And Christ has done it by his cross, and the Spirit has accomplished it by his baptism. We are one. And this is the glory of this verse and many others. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The baptism of the Spirit is about the real spiritual unity that we have in Christ. By the Spirit, to God's glory, these old divisions... That Galatians passage, the racial divisions and the gender divisions and the uh, class divisions, these old divisions. It's not that I'm not Chinese or Dutch or male or female. We still have these things. Here's the difference. They no longer define me. My identity is not that I am Chinese or Dutch or male or female. I am a follower of Christ. I am a Christian. This is what defines me. So now on that level, I can seek unity with anybody else that is also a follower of Christ. Why? Because we're one. We're one in him. And the challenge, my friends, is to display relationally what is true spiritually. And no wonder we look, at the, we look at the text and we see that we're just verses away from the most famous verses about love in the entire scripture. Chapter 13. What is love if not the relational expression of the spiritual unity that we have in Christ? So that I now, in love for those that I'm united with, am willing to serve. And I am willing to forgive. And I am willing to use my gift. And I am willing to forbear. And I am willing to encourage. And I am willing to go to the mat for my brother and sister in Christ. Because we are not divided. We are one. The motivation behind this is the unity that we have in Christ. Love is the expression of it. 
And this can overcome all these old barriers that have divided us for so long. The racial barriers, the ethnic barriers, the social barriers. This rightly applied avoids the attitude of one I heard recently on a trip where a man described his view of evangelizing people of another skin color this way. You all reach your people and we'll reach our people. I'm sure glad Christ didn't have that attitude when he died for the sins of the world. I think I'll just die for the Jews because I'm a Jew. No, red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. The gospel is not a racially exclusive gospel. It goes to everyone. And this gospel unites then and does something that no, nothing else has ever been able to do. So that someday when the church is physically together, we will gather with people from every tongue and tribe and language and people, every class, every educational background, male, female, it won't matter. We will be there and we will be one and we will worship the lamb upon the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what a moment that's going to be. It's not them and us in Christ. It is we. We. And by the way, that includes fellow Christians who define baptism in the Spirit a different way. It's not we got the most. We got the most. It's we got the same. We got the same. We are one in Christ. One spirit, one baptism, one holy church. Praise God. Amen.